We know there are times where you're just too busy to sort through the mass of information that comes your way. So to make it easier for you to stay informed, subscribe to The Morning Agenda, WITF's news podcast, where the only agenda is you. Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC. Choose UPMC for your family's health care needs close to home. Visit UPMC.com slash Central PA for a complete list of services and locations. Americans are hearing about democracy often today, whether it is resilient and its future in particular. Abraham Lincoln is considered America's greatest president for holding the Union together when the nation was at its greatest peril during the Civil War. Renowned historian and author Alan Gelzo's new book, Our Ancient Faith, Lincoln Democracy and the American Experiment, examines Lincoln's vision of democracy and how he guided the nation during democracy's most dire crisis. Alan Gelzo recently appeared at Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg, where I talked with him about Lincoln and democracy. It's estimated there are 15 to 18,000 books written about Abraham Lincoln, including several written by uh, you. So what inspired you to write our uh, Ancient Faith, Lincoln, Democracy, and the American Experience? A great deal of what I've written about Lincoln up to this point has been narrative. I've started a particular time, and then I've moved to a particular time after that and told you what's happened along the way. This, is, this book is not a narrative. This, this is a series of meditations, of, of essays, you might say, each chapter addressing a particular aspect or a particular theme of democracy and what Lincoln had to say on that subject. And people say, oh, well, you must have done this anticipating 2024. Uh, This must have been very quick uh, in the writing. And actually, no, actually, this has been in the works more or less, I think, for a good 12 to 15 years, because I've been writing odds and ends of things on these subjects actually for quite a while and wanted to bring them all together and made the proposal for this to my publisher actually back in 2021 and it as it's turned out 2024 turns out to be the year it's published but we speak to the question of democracy not because it's a particular election year but because democracy itself is something that we want to learn about, we want to know about, we want to test it, we want to see if it really works, and is there a better person to ask on what democracy is in our American experience than Abraham Lincoln? I want to talk, obviously, about that in just a moment, but let me ask you about something you just said, about we want to learn more about democracy. Democracy has become part of the 2024 presidential campaign. But yet, the polls seem to say that Americans, that's not at the top of their list of priorities. So do we want to learn more about democracy? Well, democracy sometimes is like what Mark Twain once said about the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. And for us, democracy is something we salute. 
But as soon as we have finished saluting, we wonder just exactly what is this thing? How does it operate? Is it really what we want? I can remember a time in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down, which to me then was such an unbelievable event. I never thought I'd live to see that happen. And yet, there it came down. It's like it almost crumbled on its own. And then two years later, the Soviet Union implodes. This, this largest-scale totalitarian system in the world, and it just it collapsed in on itself. And at that moment, it seemed like this was the triumph of democracy. And then in the, the ensuing 30 years, we've seen crumbling around the edges, cracks developing. We've seen the world's largest or almost largest economy become the plaything of a, a totalitarian system of its own. We've seen authoritarianism reawaken. We've seen even, even in Russia where there was this brief moment when it seemed like Russia was going to stand in the sunlight of democracy and then click, off it went, and instead Russia finds itself back in the grip of, of this, this weasel-faced authoritarian. And at that moment, you, you begin to wonder, well, is this thing that we call democracy, is, is it really all that durable? Is it really doing the job? And if it isn't, then what is the future for us? As soon as we arrive at that question, as soon as that anxiety grabs us, that's when we begin to ask the question, what is it exactly that we mean by democracy? We've been using this term, we've been applauding this thing for so long, without sometimes exploring what it is. And in some respects, this book is an attempt to take people on that exploration with Abraham Lincoln as the tour guide. I have to admit that uh, what you were just describing sounded like there are many people that question democracy. What it reminded me of is people who will question their faith. And I noticed the word faith yes. in the title here. Yes, because that's how Lincoln describes it. That phrase, our ancient faith, is a phrase he used in one of his greatest speeches. We sometimes call it the Peoria speech. It was delivered in Peoria, Illinois, 16th of October, 1854. It's a marvelous, marvelous speech. In fact, I've sometimes said that if everything else Lincoln said and wrote could somehow be erased and left to the Peoria speech standing, we would still have all of Lincoln's political philosophy. And he speaks about democracy, he speaks about what it is, and he speaks of it, describes it as our ancient faith. He actually uses that phrase twice, not quite the same words. He says, my ancient faith, and then he goes on to say, our ancient faith. And our ancient faith is what is captured in this idea of democracy. It's what's captured in great documents like the Declaration of Independence. And it's the thing that he wants to recall Americans of his day to. He wants them to reflect on it and to understand what it means. Because if they will understand that, then they will understand what to do about the great problem that was plaguing American life at that point, which was slavery. You mentioned the Declaration of Independence, and uh, I, we have spoken about this before. You have written about it. 
And I can't help thinking about the Gettysburg Address, not your address in Gettysburg, but uh, the Gettysburg Address. The Gettysburg Address. Uh, where Lincoln said, of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now that describes democracy in Lincoln's opinion, doesn't it? Very much so. It describes three functions, let's call them, of democracy. Democracy is something which is of the people. In a democracy, sovereignty. The last word, so to speak, politically. Sovereignty belongs in the hands of the people. Now, this is different, utterly, dramatically different from political systems which have a king or a monarch or a dictator at their head where sovereignty belongs at the very top and then kind of trickles down, even if it gets down very far. But in a democracy, sovereignty belongs in the people at large. And the people give up a little bit of their sovereignty when they elect someone to represent them or when they elect someone to do a particular job. But because sovereignty ultimately belongs in the people, if those officers or if those representatives don't do their job, they can be recalled and others put in their place. The sovereignty is in the people. So it's government of the people. It's also government by the people. It's government that assumes two things. First of all, that, that people will take charge of, of their lives, of their public lives, not just their private lives, but the lives they live with each other. And it also assumes, in that same phrase, it assumes that people are competent to do that, that ordinary people can, can run public affairs and do it in a way that makes everyone satisfied, if not immediately satisfied, then in the long term satisfied. And how different that is as a mentality from the mentality, the thinking of monarchs, who insisted that, in fact, ordinary people were born with saddles on their backs, and bits in their mouths for the monarchs to ride, because only the monarchs had the equipment to actually know how ordinary affairs should be governed. And Lincoln looked at the Civil War itself. He says this in May of 1861, that this war is really a test, whether the ordinary people of the country are really competent to run their own affairs, whether you can actually make this thing called democracy work. And then it's of the people, by the people, and it's for the people. Democracy is something that pays benefits to the people, not just to an elite, not just to an oligarchy, not just to an authoritarian ruler. Democracy is something that pays its benefits to everyone in that given political society. So when he, when he uses that phrase, he's not using it just to sound good. It's not just alliteration. He is really giving you a definition of how democracy should work. And that is what he says will, will in fact work, will, will not perish, if we will dedicate ourselves to it and to the proposition on which it's built, which is that all men are created equal. You know, we um, celebrated nine years ago, or excuse me, no, it's ten years ago now, about 11 years ago. My math is, time is going, that's why I'm retiring. Anyway. Uh, Be, being, being a history person, yes, time does that, I can tell you. <laughs> Authoritatively, I can But I in can November 1863, uh, Lincoln made the Get It to Brick Address, and forever after that, school kids, everyone has been uh, reciting the Gettysburg Address. Usually they say, of the people, by the people. 
for the people. Now, I've read an account, I don't know whether you wrote this or not, but that Lincoln probably put the emphasis on of the people, by the people, and for the people. you agree with that assessment? I don't think so. Oh, you don't? Oh. Okay, well, but, then you didn't but, write it. But I say I don't think so. I wasn't there. <laughs> I, I wish we had something like a tape recorder. I wish we'd had something like a cell phone. I wish we'd had something like that that could have captured Lincoln doing that, if not right there on the spot. You know, one of the, one of the real ironies is that Thomas Edison invents the phonograph and records, makes the first recordings of human voices speaking in 1880. And you think, oh my goodness, we, we only missed Lincoln by a hair's breadth. And I mean, Lincoln was born in 1809. Quite conceivably, he could have been alive in 1880. Can you imagine Edison setting up his phonograph and recording Lincoln reading his own Gettysburg Address? That would have been a treat. But, all right, we're not, we're not, that was not vouched safe to us. What we do have is the shorthand reports that were taken down by the Associated Press representative at Gettysburg that day. And he took that down in, in shorthand, and that, of course, became a version which went out to all the newspapers. And we have Lincoln's own versions of it. Actually, there are five versions of the Gettysburg Address in Lincoln's hand. So we know what he said. What we don't quite know is how exactly he said it. But my guess is that it probably would, the accent would probably have fallen on the propositions, because that at least is where the alliteration needed to be reinforced. Okay. But I will we yield to the judgment point. of anyone. We can Any, argue this point. <laughs> I, I was not there, and that sometimes <laughs> astonishes my students. <laughs> you write in the book that Lincoln used the word in his writings, the word democracy, only 137 times. But no other word described what he saw as the most natural, the most just, and the most enlightened form of human government. Talk about that. Lincoln, drawing as he did so much of his political philosophy from the Declaration of Independence, I mean, he once said in, in Philadelphia on his inaugural tour heading to inauguration in Washington, he's at, he's at Independence Hall, and there he's doing the flag raising on Washington's birthday, February 22nd, 1861. And he says, I have never had a thought politically which did not come from what was originally said and written in this hall. So for him, the Declaration of Independence is the holy writ of our ancient faith. And from that, he draws on a set of ideas that Jefferson captures in this marvelous opening paragraph about the consent of the governed, about all men being created equal, that governments are made by people to meet their needs, and when those governments do not meet those needs, the people are authorized to dispense with them and resort to something else. I mean, those are the stars that Lincoln steers by. And for him to talk about a political philosophy was really to talk about what you find in the, get, in, in the Declaration of Independence. So there's a bright line you draw from the Declaration of Independence right through everything Lincoln has to say politically. That is what guides him. Now, what else does Jefferson say? 
Jefferson also says that that nature's God has created within everyone a certain set of natural rights. And those natural rights are so obvious that everybody knows they're dead. You don't have to prove them. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Inalienable, you can't give them away. Nobody can take them from them. Nobody can sell them. Even if you wanted to give them to someone, you couldn't do it. They're inalienable. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those natural rights are hardwired into every human being. They're hardwired in the same quantity in every human being. That is what makes for the equality of everyone. And to secure those natural rights, what's going to be the best form of government to do it? Well, the, the form of government most likely to respect, to encourage, to provide the, the seedbed for the exercise of those natural rights is going to be democracy. So for Lincoln, you start with the Declaration, you start with how the Declaration describes us as political and social beings, and from there, it's, in his mind, inescapable. We have to talk about democracy, because democracy is that most natural, that most enlightened way of realizing those natural rights. As an aside, you write a little bit about uh, Lincoln and his religious beliefs. Lincoln does often refer to God. But was he a religious man? If you can give me a 25-word definition of a religious man. Was he a Christian? In any kind of formal sense, no. He never joins a church. We have no, no evidence at all that he ever participated in any Christian sacrament. He attended churches. He attended the First Presbyterian Church in his hometown of Springfield, Illinois. He attends the Seventh Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington. But he never makes a motion to join Annie. And in fact, when one member of Congress tries to pin him down at one point, this is Henry Deming of Connecticut, as, as, to, as to why he hasn't joined a church. You know, there's, there's no other American president who hasn't been a member of a church. And Deming is pestering Lincoln. Why? Why? Why, why won't you join a church? I'm sure there'd be plenty of churches who would be happy to have you under any circumstances. All you'd have to do is walk in the door and say, I'd like to be on the rolls of your church. And they say, first thing, no questions asked. And Lincoln's response to him is very... Is, is very typical of Lincoln. He says, whenever I find a church that will take as its sole test of belief this maxim, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and thy neighbor as thyself, that church, he said, will I join right away, which Deming thought was really profound. But when you think about it and reflect upon it, you realize there really wasn't any such church in Lincoln's day. Lincoln was pushing Deming aside because Lincoln did not like people to ask questions that way. Lincoln was a very private man. When William Herndon, his longtime law partner, after Lincoln's death, started interviewing people and asking them questions about Lincoln, what did, what did Lincoln say to you about this? What did Lincoln say to you about that? He asked David Davis, who had been the judge on the Eighth Judicial Circuit, where Lincoln practiced, and Lincoln appointed him to the Supreme Court. And he asked David Davis, who, who in fact was the executor of Lincoln's will, if Lincoln had ever told him what he thought on the subject of religion. Davis shot right back, no, 
I don't know anything about Lincoln's religion, and neither does anybody else. Because Lincoln never told anyone. He would never talk about things. He was much too private and self-contained. So did Lincoln have what we would call a religious life? In a formal sense, no. And yet, always with Lincoln, there's an and yet. Mm-hmm. Because this is, this is, Scott, this is a very complicated man. I mean, people who met Lincoln at first would think, oh, well, here's, here's just a, a simpleton. Here's an ordinary country lawyer. And, and one person said to Herndon when Herndon interviewed this person that when you first met Lincoln, the impression that you would have from meeting him for the first time was that here was, here was a rough, intelligent farmer. Yeah, and that was a mistake that many people made about Lincoln, which he let them make. He let them make, because he knew they would then underestimate him, and then he could take advantage of their underestimation. His, his, one, one longtime law associate of his out on, on the Eighth Circuit once said about Lincoln what I think is just about the truest thing ever said of the man. He said, anyone who took Abraham Lincoln for a simple-minded man would soon wake up with his back in a ditch. <laughs> there were an awful lot of people in that ditch. He's a very complicated man, so there's always the end yet. And the end yet circles around this. Right? First, he's, he's brought up in a very religious household, very strict religious household. But as an adolescent, he rebels against it. As a 20-something, he has a reputation for being an unbeliever. The older he gets, the less that becomes apparent, or at least he's the less aggressive about it. And by the time we get him to the Civil War, here's a president who has more to say and of more scope and profundity about God than any other president who's occupied the office. And, and it's like the, the arc of that rhetoric goes up, up, up during his presidency until you get to the second inaugural. And in the second inaugural, you have what is what is virtually a sermon in an inaugural address, a sermon about the judgment of God on the nation and what our response should be to it. And it's almost like you're hearing of one of those old Puritans in the wilderness reproving people in a Jeremiah and then leading them out of the wilderness of the Jeremiah to what should be the application to their lives with malice toward none, Mm -hmm. with charity for all. And it is a remarkable journey. And yet, and yet, and yet, what he describes in the second inaugural is God the judge. This book is written rather uniquely. As you said, it's not a narrative. It's not a biography. It examines what Lincoln thinks about democracy in several different areas. So let's kind of go down through the list. Law, reason, and passion. Tell us about that. For Lincoln, when you talk about democracy, you have to talk about the sovereignty of the people. Sometimes the sovereign people behave in unpleasant ways. Sometimes the people can be carried away And especially what he feared they'd be carried away by was this quality he called passion. You know, today we we use the word passion a lot in a a, a pot. 
Well, what's your passion? What we mean by that is, what are you really interested in? What gets you up in the morning? Lincoln didn't use the word passion in a positive way. For him, passion, passion was impulse. It was anger. It was thoughtlessness. It was someone who was out of control. And what you have to fear, if you're talking about the sovereignty of the people, is what happens when the people are out of control? Because they're going to get that way. They're human beings. And when they're out of control, it can take some very, very ugly forms. It can take, contain, uh, can take the form of, of lynch mobs. It can, tame, can take the form of rioting. It, it can take the form of all kinds of violence. It can take, take the form of some very stupid decisions. What, what keeps a democracy where the people are sovereign from running off the road? Because if, if people do behave that way in a democracy then sooner or later, and probably sooner, decent, ordinary people are going to fold their arms and say, look, this democracy thing is not the way things should go. We need someone to sort out this chaos, this anarchy. Let's, let's bring in the man on the white horse. Let's bring in Napoleon Bonaparte. Let's bring in Caesar or Alexander. They'll straighten things out. Oh, yeah, they'll straighten things out all right. They'll straighten things out at the, at the expense of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But at least that will be better than anarchy and chaos because life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness aren't going to fare terribly well in the midst of chaos. So passion can carry people away. What do you need, then? What do you need to keep the sovereignty of the people from, from going haywire, from going off those rails? You need law. Law is an expression of reason. Law says... You will do this, you will do that, you will not do this, you will not do that. There will be the penalties there for violating that law. Laws about reason, laws about people coming together, debating. This should be the policy, that should be the policy. And the reverence for the law is what will keep a sovereign people from abusing their own sovereignty and thereby bringing democracy into disrepute. In one of his earliest great speeches, the so-called Lyceum speech from 1838, he, he talks about a year before when American public life had been pockmarked by rioting, by lynch mobs. And he, and he offers examples of this. And he says, this is, this is what is going to betray. That's not an exercise of democracy. That's a betrayal of democracy. What do we need as the cure? We need not the man on the white horse, not Caesar, not Napoleon. What we need is reverence for the laws. Reverence for the laws is what will keep us true to reason rather than passion. Because democracy is fundamentally a political exercise of reason. Democracy is not an exercise of power. Lincoln, Lincoln was particularly sensitive to the appeal of power. Because power, I mean, you might say that, I'm going to sound like a physicist here for a moment, there are two great forces in, in political physics, and one of those forces is liberty, because that is what everyone wants. The other force is power, that is what everyone needs. Someone's got to keep the traffic lights on, right? The problem with power is that power is toxic, Power is like polonium. It's like radium. I mean, it's something that has great potential for making things happen, like 
explosions. Great potential for making things happen, but also great potential for poisoning the people who use it. So what do you want to do in a political system? You can't do without power, but you want to keep it firmly in control. What is the mechanism that will keep power in control? Reason as manifested by law. And so you start at the very beginning by understanding that a democracy has to be something that functions by the means of law. Because if law is not there, if passion and power take over, very soon you will not have a democracy at all. One chapter in the book, I have to admit, and, and you admit it right up front as you're writing about Lincoln and democracy having to do with the economy. Yes. Is that you very rarely hear about Lincoln, the administration, and what was happening economically during that time. Well, I mean, there was a war going on. Uh, so that could be a little distracting. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of things yeah. going on, but I learned so much about Lincoln and his views on the economy in the context of democracy. Talk about that. I mean, this was not an administration that sat back and just ignored domestic issues. Oh, no, no. If, in, in some respects, we have allowed ourselves to be, to be a little bit distracted because there is a civil war on. And I have to say, the civil war can be a slightly distracting event, <laughs> even, at, even at 160 years' distance. And we pay so much attention to Lincoln and how he managed the war, how he managed the generals, how he managed conscription and so on like that, that sometimes we forget that that's only part of the story of the Lincoln administration. Lincoln had an economic agenda, and it was a substantial one. And it was an agenda with a long history. They went all the way back to the very beginning of the Republic. Because in the longest sense, you could say that there is another one of those bright lines that you can draw from Alexander Hamilton to Abraham Lincoln. In the beginning of the Republic, there were, there were two great antagonistic economic thinkers. One was Thomas Jefferson, and the other was Alexander Hamilton. Thomas Jefferson believed that we should get by as a nation of virtuous farmers, that farmers were the really key aspect of an economy and a genuine economy was an agrarian economy. So he lauded the work of farmers. He said, if God ever had a chosen people, it must be the farmers. Of course, one could say, exactly how much of a farmer was Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> Ooh, okay, well, all right. <clears throat> That's Jefferson. The other is Hamilton. Hamilton owns no land in particular. He's, he's born illegitimate in the West Indies. He has to make his way himself. He has no friends. He has no patron. But what he has is just the most super, superb, stunning intelligence. And he understands right away that you just cannot build a nation just out of farmers. You have to have a manufacturing segment. Why, and and why, why is manufacturing and commerce important? Because the republic won't survive without them. I mean, we're independent from 1783 on. Are we going to stay independent? If you look around the world, what you see, hostile empires all around, and especially the British Empire, which was only too happy to flood the American market with cheaply produced British industrial goods. How are you going to build a republic if, in fact, there's no manufacturing segment? 
If there's no manufacturing segment in the economy, you're not going to be able to manufacture the things that you need to protect yourself against the empire. And so Hamilton argued what we need. We need tariffs to protect American manufacturing. We need a national banking system that will provide capitalization for businesses to begin in America. And you need infrastructure so that markets and consumers can be connected. And that set Jefferson and Hamilton against each other. That follow Hamilton and Jefferson squaring off in Washington's cabinet. For the 60 years that follow, American history is a zagging in ideas back and forth between these two. Where did Lincoln find himself? He would, in the longest sense, have been a disciple of Hamilton. What he, the, person he, the person he picked out as what he called his beau ideal of a statesman was Henry Clay. And Henry Clay was famous for taking those three major points of Hamilton's economic program and bringing them into the 1830s and the 1840s. And when Lincoln becomes president, he tells people, all right, yes, I'm the first Republican president, but... I am also an old line Henry Clay Whig. And when he becomes president, he not only has to deal with the Civil War, but he also has the economic agenda articulated by Hamilton, by Clay, and this is his opportunity finally to put it into place, which he does during his years as president. So he is able to sign on to a national banking system. He is able to see tariff protections at record levels, Record levels still to this day, record levels for tariff protection of American industry, and then the promotion of infrastructure, because he signs the legislation for the single biggest infrastructure bill in American history, and that is the Transcontinental Railroad. So when, when, we, when we think about Lincoln, yes, we think about the Civil War president. But if you look a little bit further beyond that, then you see at work a president who also has a major economic agenda. And it's an economic agenda which really sets America on a path that will continue for another 60 to 70 years in, in American history. It is, a, is a, Even if there had been no civil war, we would still be thinking of Lincoln's presidency as a hinge presidency in, in American life. Now, part of that hinge occurs because the civil war happens. When the Civil War happens, the Southern representatives leave Washington, the Southern representatives and senators. They subtract themselves from the political equation. They would probably have opposed tooth and nail everything that Lincoln was proposing. And that leaves Lincoln with a majority in Congress to support exactly the programs that he wants. So you might say that the Confederacy, in a very negative, unplanned way, helped Lincoln's economic agenda by removing themselves. But nevertheless, what a dramatic change the Lincoln administration makes in American life simply by the economic agenda that he's pursuing. And he does this really basically for two reasons. One is he believes that economic agenda is what promotes democracy. Because it's about the self-transformation of ordinary people. People who start out, as he started out, poor in life, work hard, save up some, go into business for themselves, become successful, then start hiring other poor people. And he said, may that cycle just go on and on and on. For him, that was the natural democratic cycle.
But the second thing is, that was also a cycle which was 180 degrees opposed to slavery. The slavery removed any possibility of the slave transforming himself or herself into something better, more productive, something that they could take charge of in their own lives. Slavery was the enemy of that kind of economic agenda. No wonder then that he is going to see himself promoting not only the resistance to southern secession, but also championing an economic vision entirely different from that of the Confederacy. We only have a few minutes left, and I do want to talk about that. Democracy and race, democracy and emancipation. The American Republic, when it was founded, faced two big challenges. Two big challenges that you might say that most Europeans would expect would deflate the whole experiment in democracy. One of them was religion, and the other was race. And in ways that we don't always give credit for, we managed to solve the problem of religion. For 150 years before the American Revolution, Europeans had torn themselves to genocidal bits between Protestant and Catholic, Christian and Jew. And you might think, oh, who could possibly ever come up with a solution? And yet, in the American environment, that was exactly what we did. We did manage, in fact, to solve that age-old, bloodthirsty problem. Well, one out of two isn't bad, I suppose. The other problem was race. Religion we knew we would have a problem with. That is what so many of the founders addressed their attention to, and which we capture in the First Amendment to the Constitution. People were less perceptive about the long-term influence of race, the pernicious influence of race. Because when you think about it, race shouldn't have anything to do with democracy. What's, what's race got to do with human identity? You've got blue eyes, I've got hazel eyes. Does that mean we're different? Someone's got one color skin, someone's got another color skin. Does that make them different? No. And yet, and yet, we've made that in, in the long stretch of human history into a serious and lethal distinction that is drawn. And American democracy had to face that, and it had a much harder time. Still has a much harder time dealing with that. And Lincoln has to deal with that. Has to deal with it because, of course, race was the justification for slavery. If he's going to oppose slavery, and he will do that, he will do that very explicitly on economic grounds. If he's going to address slavery as a problem in economics, then he has to get to the root of it by addressing it as a problem in race. How do you do that? Especially how do you do it when slavery is legal in 15 of the states of the Union? Now, remember that in these times, before the incorporation doctrine, when a state has its own set of laws, the federal government can't do anything about that. There's a firewall between the two. And Lincoln, as president, had to respect that firewall. So you might say he looks over the firewall and he sees slavery is legal in the states. What can he do about it? Can he just simply open, throw up a window in the White House and yell, free, down Pennsylvania Avenue? Oh, no, that won't work. But then comes the Civil War itself. And the Civil War gives him an opportunity, so to speak. And that opportunity is to say, you know, on the basis of military necessity... I will decree emancipation. And yet to decree emancipation, the emancipation of American slaves who are black people, 
How do you convince Americans of that? How do you convince Americans, as he once made the comment, to live themselves out of their old racial relationship into an entirely new one? I think he had expectations and plans for once the war was over, how that would happen. I mean, he starts the war saying, I don't have the authority to emancipate. You get a year into the war and he says, well, as a military measure, I have the authority to emancipate, but that's all. And then another year he says, we have emancipated the slaves. Many of them are now wearing blue uniforms and they're fighting in the army of the United States. They should have the same rights that everyone else has. You see the progression that we're making here through the war. What would have happened if he had lived, if he could have supervised a movement that would see the two races living themselves out of that old relationship into a new one? We don't know. We don't know what might have happened. Would that have been a problem that Lincoln could have solved, or would it have been a problem that might have been beyond even the abilities of an Abraham Lincoln? I don't know. That's a what if. What if questions are very dangerous territories for historians. We've got enough trouble just trying to figure out what actually happened. So I would like, and I do in the last chapter of the book, I do let myself, I give myself permission to do what I always say I shouldn't do, and that is to ask some what if, and maybe to provide some answers. But in the most general sense, I always have to remember, we don't know. And that may be one of the great crying ironies of American history. What would have happened if Abraham Lincoln had lived? People sometimes ask me, if you could go back to any moment in time, where would you go? And I know exactly where I'd go. I would go to April 14th, 1865. I would go to Ford's Theater, and I would lock John Wilkes Booth in the men's room. <laughs> Dr. Alan Gelsel, 